just as heaven deserves respect and attention and whatever, whenever I'm speaking with anyone, they deserve the same respect and love and, and attention. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the program. On this episode, author Cliff Taylor shares his vast and varied life experiences that have taken him all over the world, including China, Iraq, and Africa. Cliff, who considers himself as much a messenger as an author, is grateful for the opportunity to share through his literary works. Your first book, adult nonfiction book, was Connect, published in 2006, followed by the sequel Connections in 2018. What made you decide to write that first book in 2006? And the sequel comes 12 years later. What was the reason for taking so long to write that sequel? So the, uh, Connect was created, uh, its genesis moment, I guess is what I'm going to call it, happened April the 11th, uh, 1997. And it was just uh, an occurrence. I was wondering about something, and I asked uh, Jesus a question, and I and I understood I got the answer. And once I understood I got the answer, I knew I wasn't ready to go forward. So what I did was uh, I actually took two and a half years to come up with uh, questions that I wanted to ask. So if the if I had this ability to do it, and it was originally set out that this isn't just for me, this is for everybody to be able to do it, I needed to be kind of get kind of very educated. So I actually spent a year and a half figuring out my questions. Then I actually listened a whole nother year to everybody just talking in a way that I, ah, that's a good question to ask. Uh, that's a good one. And so finally then in 1999, I started back into it and the, it worked again. And I started asking more questions and starting to get answers. So um, I'm a poor man, money-wise. Um, can't just... Uh, it needed editing, a whole lot of editing, and then I was interrupted uh, uh, because of working overseas. And so that's why it took so long for Connect. For Connections, uh, because it's an elevated, uh, Connect is the intuitive way to be able to hear and see Heaven's answers. Connection is the physical way to do it. It took me uh, more time to get to that level of experience so that I knew, hey, this, this works, and if that's the case, then how do we apply it, and what's the best way to do it? I, I guess I'm just a thoughtful type person, and I think we talked about it last time, Rob, where I'm not schedule-driven, I'm quality-driven, and between the fact that I wanted to do it right, I needed editing, that cost money, that's, that's basically why it took so long. And so I think, too, what's interesting to know about you is this uh, what you'll call a clear channel. This means that you awoke and you were able to be clear and calm and open, no distractions, and uh, your mind was absolutely clear. I think a lot of people drive for that each day. How are you able to get to that point? Because connect is clear your mind, open your heart, and check your ego at the door, and then an important part of connection is clear, calm, and open. I guess it started with connect in that I literally kind of wiped myself clean not only of every answer and everything I'd ever heard or seen about religion and about heaven, which was important because I don't know what it's really like. I read the Bible. I've had things that talk about belief and trust, and, and I really did get rid of it. And so when I did that, then my mind literally did uh, have a lot of open space to be able to hear what it is that's being sent. 
I still have a lot of things that I don't get answers for. And, and, and I live in the mystery as much as everybody else. But I think one of the things that makes my life more uh, settled might be the word is that once I started having the experiences, not because I believed it, not because I trusted it or had faith in it, it's like it really does exist. And so that in itself, experiencing the dimension of heaven and the folks who were there was like, whoa, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to worry about the fact that this is, this isn't going to happen when, when, when my body says, hey, I'm tired of you. And so my soul says, okay, let me go back where I came from. So that's a calming effect. And so it's just like, it's natural, I think, uh, and then the more, just like everything else, the more you do it, the better you get at it, and the more you can hear. But there's still answers that I, I, I haven't gotten, and I'm not sure I ever will on this side. I will on that side, but not this side. So with clear and calm and open, uh, something else interesting, is this connected to, do you believe, you talk about people that can establish and develop that personal connection with heaven and saying once you are connected, you have that direct and conscious channel of communication, do you think that that clear, calm, and open directly ties into that? Oh, absolutely. So if you would, they're interested in our well-being. They contribute to our life every day. Whether or not we, I guess, might be accepted, surrendered to it, uh, utilize it, whatever, whatever those words are, one of the factors is if we're literally open to it. And so if we resist it, we're intimidated by it, we're afraid that, oh, you're going to, that's right, you're going to judge me, you've seen every one of my sins and all the rest of this kind of stuff, that closes up. Fear closes things up is what it does. And so if you're able to be as clear, calm, and open as you can, the channel works just that much better. Is it something that you can do on a daily basis and, and, and treating it like it would be a phone line where when you do want to get on that line or get connected, it's there if you do have a thought or a question. Absolutely. I mean, it works 24 hours a day. The only limiting factor is ourselves. And not only does it work with the heaven dimension and the heaven side of the world, it works with everyone. Because if I'm paying attention to what it is that you are saying, and, and I don't know how many times and I had this conversation with girlfriends, it seems like. Quit listening to what's in your head and listen to what's being said. And so if you would, if you ask a question and you got all this stuff going on in your mind, the answer, you can't hear it. But if you do clear yourself to where that you at least have some room to be able to uh, let that message come through, then it then it works. And And just as heaven deserves respect and attention and whatever whenever i'm speaking with anyone they deserve the same respect and love and and attention i'd like to talk about wheels up because i think wheels up goes along with more of what we're talking about right now i think it makes you think about what really is important in life you have this chance in 2003 you were down and out as far as work goes, and you really you, you get this job where you get a chance to go and work as a subcontractor in Iraq, I mean, during Operation Freedom. And, and at that time, not a lot of people wanted to willingly go to Iraq. Uh, and, and you took that chance, though, and things didn't start out well. 
to say the least, with you know getting in the trouble that you did. Can you just talk about Wheels Up and how scary was it to be arrested uh, right out of the gate when you get to Iraq? <laughs> so if you would, the job of going over there was something that I felt I could not only do, but it is something that I wanted to do. I had made up my mind, and when I do that, I'm in real good shape, that I would not die afraid. It might hurt. It might be painful, but I'm not going to be afraid. It's just, that's just, that's just how it's going to be. And so when I got over there and like what you're talking about, I got arrested because uh, uh, somebody swiped a, a pen across a couple $50 bills and it didn't turn the right color. So I was standing there in that thing in the bank uh, and the, the bank officer called up the MPs and said, hey, I got this guy over here. Send two MPs over here. I want him arrested. I did think to myself, I don't have a job to go back to. I didn't care about being arrested or whatever it was. That that wasn't on my mind. I was worried about what am I going to be able to do to uh, uh, go back. I wasn't ashamed of myself or nothing because I knew, I knew what the truth was. But it was like, hey, Cliff, if you can't handle this, somebody doing something the wrong way or whatever it is like that, you're not going to be able to get through this, so you better get it together right now. And so I, I did. I can't explain that, but once I knew that was my obstacle, all right, I'll just settle down and be calm. And then 45 minutes later, the bank officer comes in, and he goes, the bank manager, and he goes, what's this guy doing in my bank? And, and she said, uh, counterfeit money. He said, show it to me. And I said, okay, here it is. And he looked at it, and he looked at me, and he goes, where'd you get it? And I said, KBR. And he goes, um, you know, sometimes these pins don't uh, make it come up the right color. Take your money and get out of my, get out of my bank. So that was, that was my time to get arrested. <laughs> well, I love the fact, too, that the lady from the company you were working for gave you the business, too, when you got back to the office. And it was the company that gave you the money. <laughs> she did and i mean she wasn't the one but god bless i know it was like uh man you're as guilty as sin i'm gonna send you back on the next plane and all this kind of stuff and i'm going man it really did tick me off it really did but i, I forget what i said or how i said it but i think i I'm about the only thing i can think of is is that i said a couple things and i and uh, i guess by the way that she looked at me she saw i was telling the truth and she said okay Go back to work, and so that's a that that environment is war, uh, in a in a weird sense. You've got somebody that's being extremely offensive to you. You have to be defensive, and you have to take care of yourself. And so and then things worked out. So that was like, okay, I know where I am. I know why I can do this. Yeah. So and during the time and during the read, it, it talks about how you got to be. Uh, friends with the troops and it was meaningful and the job itself was something that was rewarding which is hard to find a lot of times in, in jobs that we all do did you ever think it at one time that you weren't coming home I mean you got used to being there in the war and working but did you ever have that fear that man I'm in the middle of a war I'm, I'm not coming home I wasn't going to be afraid to begin with and I guess I was totally focused on doing the job and helping the troops and being something positive for their life experience as well as their, the job that they had to do. Uh, so no, I, I wasn't afraid about not going home. So at your exit interview too in Iraq, you were asked, what would you change to make it better? And you said, tell everybody thank you. What, what does that mean? So when you're in that environment and you have to 
be aware of yourself, your surroundings, the, you're protecting yourself, you're protecting your buddy, all that kind of stuff. There is so much, and it has to be because that's the way it is. But there's a lot of things that people do that are deserving of simply of thank you. I told the troops whenever we had a meal, most of the time they didn't want to sit with us. They want to sit with themselves. And sometimes we did get to sit with them. I always took the opportunity to tell them. My family and friends back home want to make sure and let you know uh, they appreciate the sacrifice you're making and they thank you for what you're doing. And so I did that at least 200 times. It's just just amazing. And the troops' reaction was always just so amazing. And it was always the same reaction. They would take about two or three seconds and not say anything. And then they'd say, you tell them we appreciate what they're doing for us. Here our troops are in a war, and they have the grace and the presence of mind uh, to say thank you back to to uh, to the folks that said thank you. And so that's, I just think that uh, more people need to express the fact that uh, uh, we need to continue to tell our troops and our military thank you. And even the KBR folks is in too as well, because um, they're there as well. I agree. You get home. You realize, though, that you don't fit in well because you've lived this different life. And now you come home and you're seeing these people around you that are worrying about things that were trivial, like like you mentioned, a bad hair day or uh, how good is my coffee. And so you've just gone through some things and you see this. You said you wanted to go back where you belonged and where you, you felt you belonged with the troops. Can you talk about that? So when we work over there, we worked... A normal day would be to get to work at 5.30 and leave at 10 o'clock at night. You did that seven days a week. You did it for at least four months in a row. And so I'm not saying I was the best person there or the best worker or anything like that, but I could do it. I could handle that schedule and that environment and the situation. And so when it was time to come home, and then I got over here, and yeah, he reminded me about People worried about their hair, their truck. They were worried about such trivial, just, to me, meaningless things. There's a guy and a gal over there in Iraq that's fighting for this so that you can do that. And I don't know. It, it was the adjustment, and I, hadn't, I didn't go through it very good. And, and I, I said something to my, to my son, Brent, and I said, you know, I don't fit in here. I, I, I want to go back. And he goes, Dad, do you remember why you came home? I went, oh, yeah, they're trying to kill me. I forgot about that. <laughs> That's a big part of it. I, I think another thing that you probably realized is when you did get home, you were able to talk with your sons, tell stories, sharing those emails with your parents. But your parents had printed these emails, and they were in a book. So there's a nine-hour time difference between Iraq and where my folks were in uh, in Tyler, Texas. And so I could write something and know that they wouldn't see it because uh, the news hadn't reported it yet. So eventually it got to the point of, I never said, hey, we had incoming. I always said it would rain. And so dad figured it out, and I was glad for that. And I've, I think either mom figured it out or dad told mom that's what the that's what the deal is but pretty sure that uh in that particular situation every word is being read by somebody <laughs> on the side of the uh, u.s military and that's good uh, that's fine and so what 
eventually happened was is that uh, mom actually made a copy of every every email and when I came home she said look here's your book I didn't know that she had been doing it she didn't tell me and so it was uh wow it it just it just amazed me and then as I started to look through it there might be two pages of of stuff that's going on you know and and uh, this is what it's like and that kind of thing and then eventually towards the end of the end of the time when I was there it got down to about two or three sentences <laughs> not because things were different it's just uh, gosh you know it's just the wear down factor of being there and it's just stuff like that just the stories about telling the troops thank you the stories about how close it was or how how uh what it's like to uh, be over there and the kind of things that you do uh just to be able to get get over time yeah it's it just amazing i i remember a story about a guy i was telling a friend of mine bobby wright about uh, one of the the guys that was over there and he's pretty typical he's a construction man and if the building called for a steel door and he got a, a wooden door instead by mistake he'd go ranting off and all that kind of stuff but he wouldn't put the wooden door in it. And then he complained five minutes later because there was sand getting coming in through the door. And it's like, dude, you don't belong here. You need to go home. So on his way home, uh, literally, they put him on one of the planes that had the uh, troops that had fallen and uh, killed in action. And they were uh, in their casket with the flag over it. And so what a reward uh, to be able to ride in that plane. Uh, and what was even crazier, we were having lunch, Bobby and I were at a restaurant, and I noticed somewhere about a third of the way through, the waitress was just standing there, and I, I didn't feel like stop talking. I was, you know, Bobby and I were sharing a good moment, and it turned out that was her dad. And she goes, I know who you're talking about. That's my dad. And you described him to the T. And then we talked a little bit more about names and places where he lived, and, and it uh, verified it. So... There was just stuff like that that was just amazing and just, uh, I just, I just, I remember thinking, hey, did I tell you about this one? Yeah, that was pretty cool. Hey, Cliff, we really appreciate your time today. It was nice catching up and look forward to hearing from you again on the next episode. How can people learn a little bit more about who you are? Thanks, Rob. And for everybody, I want you to please go to the website, www.clifftaylor.com, Cliff with one F. And today I want to, as always, give thanks to Heather Pascoe, who's our voiceover and uh, MC, Rob Pascoe, the narrator, and our producer, Steve Weingarten. Appreciate all of y'all. Thank you very much. And uh, next time.